0: Thank you all for that. If you have your Bible, it's going to be turning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is where we'll be. This is one of those texts that would be easier to skip uh, for a number of reasons. It's it's not an uplifting story uh, by any means. It's a hard story. And its placement makes it harder and I'll explain what I mean as we go along but this is not the most convenient of places that Mark could have put this particular story and yet he put it here on purpose and I think he rightly put it here on purpose not that God consulted me before putting his word together but I just happened to share that opinion with Mark but it would be one of those stories, one of those parts of scripture that would be easy to skip, not just not deal with that, talk about the good stuff, not talk about the hard stuff, and yet it's, it's necessary. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 6, I invite you to stand as we read. Mark chapter 6, we'll pick up in Verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others that he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? She said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would come now and meet with us as we study your word and help us to see, O God, that in the midst of this, you are good and you are glorious and your mission marches forward. Lord, help us to see what you would have us to see this day, that we might walk more faithfully following your son. God, we ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so I mentioned last week that last week would be the first of a series of four sermons focusing on discipleship, two of which will come right out of Mark 6. And then the two weeks following from today, we will do more of a doctrinal look at what is a disciple or who is a disciple and we'll look more about I'll say more about that towards the end of the sermon but the main idea today is the same as last week you see there on your notes in the face of rejection and death our mission is to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom of God Last week, we looked at Mark 6, 6 through 13, where Jesus sent out the disciples. He commissioned them to go. He said, two by two, don't take much with you. Go and preach the gospel. I'm giving you power for for the mission I'm sending you to complete. The week prior to that, if you recall, the first part of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in his hometown in Nazareth, and he's, he's, uh, he's... talking to his family, and he's in the local synagogue, and he has, he has the scroll of Isaiah brought to him, and he reads the scroll, and the people respond negatively, and Luke tells us that they took Jesus out to a mountaintop and tried to throw him off and kill him, and so Jesus has been rejected in Mark chapter 6. He's been rejected by those who know him best because of his authority, because of his, because of his authoritative teaching of the word. And he sent out his disciples now to carry out this mission. They were with him in the rejection. They've sent, he sent them out. And before they report back, because in, in verse 30, if you remember from last week, they come back and tell him all that they did. Before they report back, Mark tells us this story about John. Jesus is rejected because of his authority. Jesus sends out his disciples on what we learn in verse 30 is a successful mission about going with the gospel and, and, and casting out demons and teaching and preaching, a successful mission. And then Mark inserts this story of John's death, of John's murder. And it's all tied together. It's all meant to help us see the life of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, verses 14 through 16 tie the two together. They tie the sending of the disciples together with the death of John. Look at the text. Verse 13, that talks about they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them, and King Herod heard of it, Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known Herod had heard of what Jesus had been doing. Herod had heard of, apparently, he had heard of the disciples going out on this mission that Jesus had sent them on. He had heard of the miraculous things that Jesus had been doing. Just like the people of Nazareth, if you remember, they had heard of what Jesus had been doing. Raising the dead, healing the sick, calming the waters. It heard all of this and Herod had heard all of this too and now you've got these disciples on mission on behalf of Jesus and so verses 14 through 16 if we, if we were watching a movie or somebody was kind of telling us a story this would be where the flashback begins to start you know like in a movie the, the music starts to play and the, and the character kind of looks off looks up like you're having a memory and then it fades into a, another memory that's what's going on here Herod is remembering this story about John. It's not happening simultaneously. The the disciples are not going out as John is being put to death. Herod is remembering what he has done to John as he hears about the disciples' mission. And so Mark says, "Well, this fits. This helps. This helps uh, explain the call to discipleship. This story of John's." demise so the first thing I want us to see is the wicked immorality of Herod Antipas the Tetrarch now if you look in verse 14 it says King Herod now uh, Herod was not a king if you know anything about uh, Jewish life during this period they were ruled by Rome rome put its own puppet governors in israel to control israel as rome would want it controlled which is a lot of reasons why the jews were looking to jesus to be this military conqueror they wanted him to ride in on this horse and and just lay waste to rome but as if you know the story you know that's not what has happened jesus conquering of the world is far much farther reaching than just laying waste to rome but Rome was controlling Israel through these puppet governors called tetrarchs. And Herod Antipas was a tetrarch. Now, Herod, after Jesus' death, would begin to petition Rome. He would begin to petition the emperor. "Um, Can I please have the title king? Can I please have the title king? Come on, make me a king. And eventually the emperor got so annoyed with Herod that he stripped him of all of his power. And so perhaps Mark is using a bit of irony here when he says King Herod because Herod acted like he was a king and yet he wasn't. In his pride, he was boastful And so Mark is is poking at that a bit in verse 14 where it says King Herod heard of it. But I want us to look at the wicked immorality of Herod Antipas. John the Baptist had carried out his ministry. If you remember when we meet John in Mark chapter one, he's out in the wilderness and people are coming out from Jerusalem and, and, and into the wilderness area where John is. Jesus comes out to be baptized by John. And so if, we, if we're going to put together the geography of where John is, he's most likely down in the Dead Sea area. Now, if you know anything about uh, the, the geography of Israel, it's a long, skinny country. Galilee's at the, at, the, at the northern part. Jerusalem is kind of in the middle, a little bit south. And then the Dead Sea is down in the wilderness area. And so he's down in the Dead Sea area. And while he's carrying out his mission, while he's, while he's preaching repentance, if you remember, he's, he's preaching repent and be baptized. While this is going on, he hears of what Herod Antipas is doing, which is quite wicked. He, he takes his step, or his brother's wife as his own wife, which is against Jewish law. His brother was still living and yet his brother's wife leaves him, his brother Philip, and comes to marry Herod Antipas. But not only that, Herodias is also his niece. So not only is she married to his brother, she's also his niece. And so John is is publicly condemning Antipas for this marriage because it's adulterous and it's incestuous. So Herod seizes John, locks him away in the prison so that, he, so that John can't, can't continue to, make it, to, to, to bring shame upon him publicly. Herod knows what he did was wrong. Herod knows what he did was against Jewish law. Herod knows what he did was just morally wrong and despicable and yet instead of repenting of it, He locks John away. But Mark records something interesting about this relationship. Look at verse 20. It says Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. He knew something was different about this guy, and so he didn't want to put him to death. He actually wanted to listen to him. He knew his wife Herodias wanted wanted him dead, but Herod was scared. Just like most men who puffed themselves up with with authority, uh, with the positions of authority, they hide behind those things. Herod was a fearful man. Herod knew he was in the wrong. And Herod knew, I've got to silence John, but I can't hurt him. And so he locks him away in the prison. And then strangely, it says that he listened to John that he wanted to hear what John was saying. Now, do you remember what John was saying? John was saying, what you've done is wrong. What you've done is is immoral. It's wicked. It's despicable. You need to repent and be baptized. The judgment of fire is on the way. He says uh, earlier in in Mark that the, the, the ax is laid to the tree root. Or maybe he says that in Matthew. He says that in one of the Gospels. Essentially saying, don't be fooled, judgment is on its way. That ax is about to be swung into the tree. And strangely enough, it says that Herod was, was pleased to listen to him. But, but it had no effect. Herod here is shown inside of Mark's gospel, if you recall Mark 4, to be bad soil you remember in mark chapter 4 he records that first long teaching of jesus and jesus talks about the soils the parable of the soils the sower went out and sowed seed some of it fell on 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 uh, the rocky path some of it fell on among thorns some fell among good soil and it produced fruit Herod inside of mark's gospel is being shown to be bad soil the seed of the truth of god is falling on him He may even be the seed that fell among the thorns because it took root and yet the cares of the world grew up around it and choked it out. But he heard John and it it pleased him what he heard, but it had ultimately no effect. So Mark is showing that he's bad soil. There are also overtones of the Old Testament in this story. If you ever read the Old Testament specifically in 1 Kings, you will remember the story of Jezebel and King Ahab. It was an immoral marriage, and the prophet Elijah is speaking out about Jezebel. And Jezebel, like Herodias, doesn't like it. And so she begins to plot and push Ahab, wipe this prophet out. Take him out. And so we're seeing, once again, these stories repeat themselves. Like, you've heard of history repeats itself, Sin often repeats itself, but we're hearing biblical overtones of a scheming wife trying to get rid of one of God's prophets in this story. But let's look at the details of John's death. Herod's having a, a birthday party. It says that in verse 21, an opportunity, opportunity came when Herod, uh, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet Herod was not going to miss an opportunity to make much of himself, to, to throw a party. And in Jewish life, birthday parties were considered to be pagan rituals. That's, that's not anything about today. Okay, So I'm not condemning birthday parties. I'm just saying Jews in the first century did not have birthday parties. But Herod is the ruler of the Jews, and instead of trying to build bridges with these people that he's ruling over, he's just despising their way of life. He's going to do what he's going to do. So he's having a, a birthday party, and all of his important men are there. He so he invites all the important men of Galilee, his military rulers, the, the governors, those whom he needs in his corner, they're all there for the party. And according to uh, the, the context of what would be happening, Herod is most likely inebriated. He's drunk. That's how these parties would go. And then this strange thing happens. His daughter comes in. And again, it's not, a, it's not a very uplifting story. <clears throat> but while the party's going on, in comes his stepdaughter, and she begins to dance. And the context ind- indicates that it's a sensual dance, something that pleased these wicked men. So not only is Herod willing to commit incest in his marriage, he is indulging his young daughter in a way that's entirely inappropriate. There's just nothing off limits for this wicked, grotesque man. And so in his inebriated state, his daughter, he brings his daughter close and he says, "Uh, ask of me whatever you'd like, up to half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. Now here again, we we just need to note, Herod did not have permission to do this. Herod did not have the authority to do this. Herod had to ask Rome for permission to do anything. But he, he thought, he wanted people to think well of him. He wanted people to think he, he has power and he has authority. And so he says this, this he makes this offer that he, he can't fulfill. Ask whatever and I'll give it to you. Well, Mark records that the daughter runs back to the mother, which is kind of a way of indicating she's still fairly young. And so she runs back to Herodias and asks, what should I ask for? so some some people think Herodias threw this whole party in, in, in an effort just to get to John that she she was she was mad, she was furious about what John had been saying, and she was looking for a way and so she she connived to throw this this party to get Herod drunk so that she could make this request that she had sent her daughter in there on purpose. Some people think that this was just a just a, a, a a turn of events that she capitalized on. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is what she asks for. She says, her daughter comes to her, what should I ask for? She said, ask for John's head. So the daughter returns to Herod, makes her request. Party's going on, might be music playing, The, the drinks are flowing. It's feeling good and the girl comes and asks and immediately Herod is is sobered. It's like the music stops. It's like all the movement going on stops and Herod is startled. He doesn't want to do this. He, He is protecting John. If you remember, why did he put him in prison? One of the reasons he put him in prison was not just to shush him up. It was to protect him from Herodias, to keep him safe, and yet now he's put, his, he's put his authority on the line. This prideful man, I want you to think more of me than what I actually am. I need you to, to, to think that I'm more powerful than I actually am. And he's put his reputation on the line in front of these, all these people, all these governors. Ask of me whatever and I'll give it to you. And so he's caught in his own web because he's asked for John the Baptist's head and he obliges he's caught between a rock and a hard place and he gives in to what's wrong because he wants to maintain his own self-image now one thing that mark doesn't focus on is john himself we don't hear from john outside of chapter one now the bible says a lot of things about john the baptist jesus calls him the greatest of all men the most righteous of men. But I think it's helpful to connect with John's humanity because John's been in prison for a long time. John has struggled with his faith in prison. Sometimes we think of these biblical characters as like never never struggling with their faith, never having a hard time, never failing. And yet John, the greatest of men, Struggled. In Matthew chapter 11, you can flip over and look at it later, but in Matthew chapter 11, John sends messengers to Jesus asking him, Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another one? And he's, he's in prison, he's struggling, he needs an assurance of faith. And Jesus says, Go tell John that the blind are receiving their sight. That the deaf are hearing, that the dead are being made alive. And Jesus knew that John would hear the word of God being fulfilled when he said that. Because if you remember, when Jesus goes into Nazareth and he reads from the scroll, he says, the the, the blind will receive their sight, the deaf will hear. These are Old Testament prophecies that come to fruition in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ. And so while John is been in prison, Jesus has even been ministering to John through his messengers, and yet John is still put to death. <clears throat> I teared up a little bit on the front row while y'all were singing. It was, it was a great song. Wasn't particularly tied to y'all singing, but there's a, there's a lyric in that song that says, and when the earth fades and falls from my eyes, And you, Jesus, stand before me. I know that you love me. And sometimes I think we can miss what happened. Because in verse 27 it says, the executioner went and beheaded him in the prison. It's an actual event in John's life. But in that moment, John met Jesus. Jesus that the earth fell from his eyes and his Lord stood before him. And it just, it just, it just rested on me in that moment while y'all were singing, like that, that happened. That will happen for all of us if we die in Christ, that when the earth fades from our eyes, we will stand before Jesus. Amen. But I want us to see something about John's death. It's not just a focus on his death, it's a foreshadowing of something greater. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' his own death. When we meet John in Mark chapter one, he appears as this Elijah-like forerunner for the Messiah. In Mark chapter one, it says, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's something that Elijah is doing in the Old Testament that, that John does in the New Testament for Jesus if you recall, I said that make way means clear the highways, make them, make them clean and level and easy so that the king may come in. When we meet John, he is the forerunner of the Messiah and his task is not only to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival, his task is to show how Jesus will die. He will announce the coming of the Messiah and he will foreshadow the death of the Messiah. Let me explain to you how. You see, John was wrongly seized for preaching truth and handed over to wicked rulers. So too will Jesus be. John was executed by a political ruler who was hesitant but caught in the web of his scheming wife. Jesus will be executed by a political ruler, Pilate, who is hesitant because he washes his hands. He doesn't want to be held accountable. He's hesitant, but he's caught in the web of the scheming Pharisees. John's power grew in influence after his death, and we see that in Herod's panic. John is having more influence over Herod after he's died than before. And what we will see that Jesus' full power and mission come to light after his death and his resurrection So John not only functions to announce the arrival of Jesus, John functions to foreshadow what's coming for Jesus. The Bible goes to great lengths to help us see Jesus clearly. And and the hero of John's death is not John. Although John died in faith, the hero of John's death is Jesus. Jesus. Because unlike John, Jesus' death will atone for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death will provide the way of salvation for all who repent and believe. And so I want to take what time we have left and ask the question, how do we apply this? Why why, Why did Mark put the story of John's death right here? Why did he put it in the middle of the disciples going out and returning on this triumphant mission? Why did he take this bucket of cold water and throw it on the heat of success? The answer is because true discipleship is costly and unpopular true Christian discipleship is costly and it's unpopular. Remember, Mark's telling this story right in the middle. Jesus has commissioned his disciples, go, I'm giving you authority, you're gonna succeed. We see in verse 30 that they succeed. And Mark says, right in the middle, but don't forget, it will cost you. It may even cost you your life. We must not forget that the Christian faith centers on a crucified Savior. There is a Savior at the center of Christianity, but he is a crucified Savior. He's not just a Savior. He is a crucified Savior. Those who would be followers of Christ are called to follow Jesus in the way of suffering, rejection, and even sometimes death. And yet, and yet the Bible calls this gospel. And the word gospel means good news. So Mark says, some of the, those of you who would follow Christ, remember that you are following in the way of a crucified Savior. You are following in the way where you will be tested, where you will suffer, where you will, you will face rejection on the name and the account of Jesus Christ, and some of you will even suffer unto death. But take heart, that's good. It's good news. To be Jesus' disciple, one pastor says, means that I am allowing my identity to be shaped by the identity of the one who died forsaken on a cross. See, a lot of us, I think, struggle with this. It's a natural point of struggle. Struggle. I want to be identified in Jesus. I want to be identified in his triumph. I want to be identified in his successes, in his power, in his authority. But I can do without the suffering and the death. And by by putting this story of John's death in the middle of the disciples' successful mission, Mark is showing us you can't have it either or. If we are going to say yes to Jesus, we must say yes to him as being the crucified Savior. Which means that the one who died forsaken on the cross must shape our identity. And that is a hard pill to swallow at times. One of the major aspects of Jesus' ministry is to reshape the life and the worldview of his disciples. So, So we don't get to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've got all my ideas about life and the world already formed. I just need you to save me. That's not Christianity, and yet that's how so many try to approach it. The disciples were full grown. They were into their careers. They had their lives established and Jesus started with them by saying, I've got to change the whole way that you think. He's not just saying, I'm going to give you some new things to do. He's saying, I'm teaching you to relearn the world. And for those who were Jewish, he's saying, you've misunderstood this which is why all throughout Mark's Gospel, we see the disciples failing more than we see them succeeding, because you see discipleship takes time it 'd be really nice if Lifeway would sell this this crank box that you could just drop a new believer in, crank it a few times, and then out comes a fully formed disciple. that would be great i 'd be out of a job, but oh well. But it'd be great if that's how we made disciples, if we could just do a few predetermined things and then out pops this mature believer. But one of the things Mark's gospel confronts us with is that believers mature slowly. The disciples go on to be some of the most influential people in world history. But in Mark's gospel, they fail a lot. We'll see Peter making all kinds of bold claims and then falling right flat on his face. I mentioned last week, we see the disciples succeed in Mark chapter 6, but in Mark chapter 9, they fail. Jesus' mission in the world starts with retooling our minds, with helping us unlearn the world and relearn it according to his word. The disciples had to come to understand the world through the lens of Jesus' mission. They must come to understand their own lives through the lens of Jesus' mission. They must relearn not only the world, they must relearn themselves. That's why the gospel is offensive. It's good news, but it's offensive because what it says is you're going about the world in your way. And God says, that's wrong. Jesus comes that we might have life and have life abundantly, and we all want abundant life, but we don't get to have abundant life on our terms. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so before the disciples can ever really lay hold of what Jesus is trying to do, they have to learn who Jesus is and who They are. They have to learn what Jesus is calling them to. We must relearn ourselves. That's part of the work that Jesus comes to work in our hearts to help us unlearn the ways of the world and relearn how to live inside of the kingdom of God. Which is why over the next two weeks, we're going to take a, take a deeper look into the character of a Christian disciple. When we ask the, the, the question of the Bible, what are the characteristics of a faithful disciple? Several things emerge. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't leave that question unanswered. But you'll notice how I ask that question. I didn't ask, what does a faithful Christian disciple do? Now, the Bible answers that question also. But before we can answer that question, we must understand who is a Christian disciple? Who are they? What's true of their character? So here's some things that we're gonna look at over the next couple of weeks, but I I wanna whet your appetite now. First thing we see that's true of a disciple is that they have unconditional surrender to God. They deny themselves. They bear their cross. They follow Jesus. They do the will of God. We see that they have a unshakable belief and trust in God. We see that they're committed to prayer, which means that they've learned to agree with God's will more than their own. We see that a Christian disciple watches over their heart. They guard themselves against sin and against doubt. They also know that they need the help of the other Christians to do that. We see that Christian disciples have humility, that they are forgiving, that they stand up against temptation, and that they proclaim Christ To the world. These are all true characteristics that we see emerge from the pages of Scripture about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This all takes time. And this is what it means to be the church. Do you know why we show up week in and week out? So that we can help each other work these things out. Do you know why we give to things like the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering? So that we can go to the lost and work these things out. They're not things that we do within ourselves, they are the fruits of the work of the gospel that the Holy Spirit is working in us. So, how do we respond? Well, first, we need to ask ourselves on the basis of this story. One of, the, one of the, the clearest questions that the story of John's death confronts us with is, am I willing to count the cost? Am I willing to count the cost and follow Jesus? The Christian life, remember, is centered around a crucified Messiah, a crucified Savior, there is no Christianity without taking up the cross. And the story of John's death is in the Bible for a purpose. Are we willing to count the cost? But a second thing we need to ask is that the Holy Spirit would help us hear and understand. This is a hard story. As I said up front, it would be easy to skip this part. But we need to ask the Holy Spirit that he would help us to understand. We need his guidance if we are to rightly understand what it means to follow King Jesus. And so I want to I give you a prayer to pray today and this week. We need to pray something like this. Holy Spirit, I want to, to faithfully follow Jesus. Help me to have the faith to understand the call to follow Jesus. I want to have the humility to admit where I might be ignorant or wrong. I want to have the humility to admit where I need to grow and mature. And I want to have the boldness to follow and to obey. I challenge you all. I challenge you all to make that or something like that your prayer this week and for the weeks coming for the rest of your life, really. That we, would, that we would earnestly cry out to God to give us faith, to walk faithfully. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I do pray. I do pray that you would help us to know and follow Jesus. <clears throat> this is a difficult story, and I I pray, God, that you would help us to see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, help us to have the humility to admit where we may be wrong or ignorant or help us to admit, oh God, where we may have, have a need to grow and a need to mature. Help us to, to see that not as a bad thing but as an opportunity to know you more. And help us, Holy Spirit, to have the boldness to follow and obey. God, I pray this in your holy name. Amen. As we respond, I, I would encourage you to do uh, one of a few things pray in your seat. Uh, the altar is open. Come and pray here. I'm available to come and pray with me, but respond as God would lead you. Let's stand and sing.